Welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. My name is Adrian Terulo. I'm the youth leader here at Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. And sitting with me here is Pastor Dan, also from Shiloh Church. He is our pastor. Hi. And today is going to look a little bit different than the previous Echo podcast that we've been in, as you can probably tell already. Um, we There was no sermon this past Sunday, so um, we thought, well, let's just have a conversation. We'll just talk about what's going on in church life and um, what's going on in our minds and, and that kind of thing, and we hope yeah. you enjoy. Seems like the big-time podcasters... Uh, periodically we'll just have a an episode dedicated to readers and listeners mail and you know so like like sometimes we answer questions well they answer questions and they respond to emails and things like that well since we don't have any email to read hint listener you could send us an email uh we hope it's nice and we hope that it's challenging and you could um, you know just let us know of a topic you'd like us to visit or something so every church uh, podcast that i've ever heard always has at least one or two of these a year or if not more so we have on fifth sundays a fifth sunday celebration and that's when we do something really different from the usual worship routine and uh, it worked out that since i had to be out of town last week and got home late on saturday night that was a perfect day for a fifth sunday celebration where i didn't preach a sermon because otherwise they might have been listening to a mumbling bumbling half-awake pastor (laughs) so i'm glad you set the stage with that because i didn't even think about I'm sure there are listeners out there who are like, wait a minute, what kind of church doesn't have a sermon on Sunday? Well, sometimes our church. And you know what? It was awesome. Mm-hmm. It was an awesome service. It really was. You were one of the musicians that we had, and uh, uh, your good husband and the rest of our, our sons and daughters band, and they they gave us a lot of great music and worship and uh, it was certainly a, a, an all-around terrific Sunday morning worship experience, and it didn't have to have a sermon. That, You know, that's one of those things that you and I um, have both come out of our Catholic upbringing. And it's, it's very difficult for a person who's worshipped in Catholic Church all their life to wrap their mind around what, Protestants, which is a term that most Catholics use to describe non-Catholics, which is sort of like Jews calling non-Jews Gentiles. It's a very broad term in their minds, and it covers a lot of uh, a lot of people. In fact, uh, not all non-Catholics technically would be called Protestants. So that's just an interesting aside right there, because. Protestants were, in effect, like the Lutherans, the ones who were part of the original Reformation. So anyway, Hmm. a lot of non-Catholics do church in ways that Catholics find strange. And what they find strange about it is, is that it isn't exactly the same week after week, every time. You know, there is a certain form and structure that is followed in many religious traditions 
including the Catholic Church, but not limited to the Catholic Church, that are followed very faithfully. The Church of England, uh, Lutheran churches, many have some very strict rituals that they follow. And every religious expression always includes these rituals. And that's neither good nor bad. The tradition that we follow is a pretty loose one in the sense of how worship is done. In the Methodist tradition, there are a lot of variations. Um, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, would probably not be entirely comfortable with some of the expressions of Methodism today. Not that he would be opposed to them, he just would find that they were very different from what he had done. And like I said, I don't think he'd have a problem with them because he created a religious expression through the Methodists where you followed some of the core things that were part of the Church of England that he served as a, as a priest. But he also did things that, well, he called them vulgar, which we tend to use the word vulgar as a as a far harsher term you know mm -hmm. but he would he would talk about for example the vulgar practice of preaching outdoors you know so from his point of view back in the 1700s religious activity was meant to be done inside a uh, hallowed ground you know a beautiful place that was dedicated to the service of of the sacraments and all that sort of thing and so you know he liked church in the church building and so for him to have made that switch and and you have to imagine a guy with a very sharp mind and a very good representation of that british sort of dry wit you know he had that sort of london wit where a lot of times he was joking but you might not recognize it as a joke at first, but you see the twinkle in the eye and you realize he's making a joke. And I think he might have been joking when he said, you know, I learned to embrace the vulgar practice of preaching outdoors. And maybe he said it with a straight face, but there was a twinkle in his eye because what he was really saying is he was mocking himself. He's saying, you know, I had to try something that didn't seem natural to me and it worked really well. Because he's the same guy who then said, you know, sometimes people would come to listen to me preach because they just wanted to watch me light myself on fire and burn up in front of them. You know, so he, he's making a joke about the fact that once he started preaching outdoors, people would come to watch him just for the sheer entertainment value of it. And maybe they were more entertained by hecklers than the actual preacher, you know, so... So all of that to say that this was a guy who was open to variations on a theme. He was open to outdoor preaching. He was open to uh, the Holy Spirit showing up and disrupting all of their plans. You know, he was always very open to all of that. And so with that in mind, we have at this, the heart of our Methodist tradition an absence of immovable tradition you know like like one of the things that's part of the methodist tradition is to not get too traditional you know so that we don't find ourselves unwilling or unable to embrace something that might be an entirely new expression of the holy spirit 
So with that in mind, you come to a Methodist church and there are certain things that seem consistent to the members because we generally do the same thing week in and week out. We follow a certain pattern of worship and so forth. But we think nothing of mixing it up. We don't have a problem with the idea that this Sunday we're just going to sing music and sing songs and make music and we're not going to have communion this Sunday and we're not going to have uh, the preaching this Sunday, but next Sunday we will. You know, so that's yeah. a very that that's a very natural expression. And the other thing that is very sort of Protestant in in as long as I'm on this topic is, and this is something my Catholic family has pointed out to me, um, is that they will watch me on video or something, and what they've noticed is that we put more emphasis on the preaching than we do the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's essentially true. Um, generally in the Catholic Mass, the sacrament is the highlight of the worship experience, the Eucharist, but the um, preaching is is really just a brief commentary on, on the scripture reading for the day. Whereas in many Protestant or non-Catholic traditions, the preaching is the main event. And the sacrament or the Eucharist is something that is done, well, in some churches, in many Methodist churches, it's done once a month. Hmm. We do it once a week because there are a lot of people in our church that just really prefer that. And there's nothing that keeps us from doing it. We don't have any prohibition. You know, that's another thing a lot of people will do. They'll hear something said like, well, I hear they only do communion once a month or once a quarter in that church. And then there are all kinds of assumptions associated with that. But the truth is, is that the pastor of the local church, in agreement with the members and the elder members of the church, might decide they like having it once a week. And they could. There's nothing stopping them from doing that. John Wesley liked to get communion every day when he was in college because, well, frankly, he was still dealing with his feelings of inadequacy, and he thought if he got the sacrament every day, it might help. You know, he hadn't embraced grace at that point in his life. So basically, it would be unwise and inaccurate for people outside of the tradition that they grew up in. Uh, Let me rephrase that. It would be unwise and inaccurate for somebody who's observing another tradition than their own to make too many assumptions about it. What you can say is, is, I see that in some churches they only take communion once a month, but don't assign too much meaning to that unless you ask. Mm-hmm. You know, be a critical thinker, ask a question, and then consider the answer, you know? And you might just find out that, well, it just depends on which Methodist church you go to. Yeah, I think that's a crucial follow-up just as we like live our lives you know ask a question and then listen for the answer (laughs) and and think about that and and listen to hear not to respond um but honestly i think some of the moments where we have um done something different outside of the norm have been the most impactful Mm -hmm. uh like in our 
the Advent series last year when we had a few people kind of dress up as different characters. Mm-hmm. Or was that Easter? I think that was Lent, actually. It was Lent. It was during Lent. It was Lent. Um, and, you know, so we had a Roman soldier and we had a, yeah. That's yeah. right. It was Lent. Yes. And that was just so cool to, to hear, like, Ted came up, Ted Miller, and dressed up as a Roman soldier and told us the story of crucifying Christ from what might have been a Roman soldier's perspective. In fact, it was the soldier who pierced his side with the sword. Um, So I don't know. Stuff like that is really cool. And um, I think the music service this past Sunday was so meaningful. And um, Jackie's impromptu uh, just speaking from the spirit, I think, was very cool, too. Mm-hmm. She said something along the lines of, well, because after we would play each song, you know, people would clap, you know, there'd be applause. And she said, you know, that applause is not for us. It's for God. Mm-hmm. Like, we're all worshiping God together. This is not like some performance for you. We want to provide uh Sorry, Jackie, if you're listening, and I'm just botching your words right now. But basically, I think that was the essence of what she was saying, is like, we're not performing for you, we're performing for God. I know she said that. Yeah, well, she had mentioned it to me before the service, and I think maybe she was hoping I would say it. And um, considering I hadn't planned to be part of that worship service, and apparently some of you didn't even expect me to be there. Which is fine, but I I like being there and not having to be the center of it all. It's kind of nice for me to just worship. Yeah. But all that being said, she she may have expected me to do it, and then when I didn't, so she she just kind of followed her own prompting and said essentially that you know people seem conflicted, and I've brought this up a lot in worship. Uh, I'll say to people, you know, I know you're wondering whether you should clap or not. Like I'll just call it out in the church service. And I say, you know, you you can clap. I mean, if you feel moved to clap, you probably should because it's an expression that emerges from you. Um, It just comes out of you in a very natural and authentic way. I mean, um, sometimes you stand and you clap with joy because you're having a response. Mm -hmm. And, And when you're in church... And you feel like you have to fight that response. That's a shame, really. Because if you're worshiping God and something just really inspired you, then embrace that expression, you know. And what the artists or the preachers or the speakers, you know, nobody ever claps at the end of a sermon. But I always think, you know, that one was pretty good. And I'll bet somebody was tempted to clap. Um, the conference I went to last week, many of the things that were said were delivered in the form of a uh, speech, I guess you could say, but they were part of a religious activity. And because the format was more of a conference, when somebody said something, even if it sounded a lot like a sermon people still clapped because they were inspired by what they heard and so once again when we when we confine ourselves to rituals and traditions and i'm not this isn't a this is not meant to come across like some some sort of a a rant about tradition i tradition's wonderful and and traditions give meaning to our life i mean traditions 
But what happens a lot of times is, is that when we do something with the spirit of tradition, a lot of times what ends up happening is, is that we lose the meaning. You know, we forget that there was a reason that we did this and there's a consistency to it. There's, there's an old story about a salesman who uh, had worked very hard at Christmas time to increase his sales because he wanted to win this 15 pound ham that the boss had promised to the person who sold the most. And he wanted to bring his family a 15 pound ham for Christmas dinner and, and that he had won. And so he did. He won the, pan, the ham. He brought it home to his wife and his wife sat it in uh, her, the pan, you know, to put it in the oven. And the first thing she did was cut off the end of the ham <laughs> and set it aside. And he looked at her and he said, why did you do that? I want to eat the whole thing. And she said, oh, my mother always did that. And he said, get your mother on the phone. I want to know why she does that. So they got mother on the phone and mother said, you know, that's funny thing. My mom always did that. I guess that's why I did it. Well, get your mother on the phone. So grandma's on the phone now. And they said, grandma, how, why do you always cut the end of your ham off before you put it in the oven? And she said, because that's all the bigger my pan was. And the funny thing about that story is, is that we can think immediately when we hear it of things like that in our own lives. Lots of things. Why do we do the same thing that our parents and our grandparents did? We don't even know a lot of times. We just do it because it's what we always do. Oh. And a lot of times in churches, people will say things like, well, we've never done it that way before. Or they'll say, but that's the way we've always done it, which both mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. It means that we're really comfortable with what we're familiar with, even if we don't know why we're familiar with it. You know, It's like, I don't want you to change anything on me because I'm a, uncomfortable with change. But at the same time, I can't defend what we always do because I've long forgotten why we ever did it. So people get stuck. So there's where tradition can become a real hindrance. And yet some traditions, if you can keep the meaning behind it alive, become incredibly rich and powerful expressions. And so tradition in itself is not bad. It's mindless tradition that's bad. And church is full of it. Church is full of mindless tradition. People do things in churches that comfort them and when they're honest about why it comforts them, there's no real meaning to it other than the fact that the sameness comforts them. And so if you're honest and you realize that the only thing that's comforting you is that this is the same and it hasn't changed, then it's really a false sense of comfort. If you can understand why it comforts you and you can express it in better terms then because this is the way we've always done it, then your tradition has value. Then it has a certainty to it that makes it important. And a lot of unimportant things get done at church and in the name of religion that they become unimportant because nobody even knows why they do it. You know, I, I mean, we have church people in this church family who show up for Christmas and Easter or when they want a child baptized or something like that, and then we never see them again. And you think to yourself, 
why would you have me baptize your child and then never bring your child to church? And it's because there's something comforting about it. And if they, if you ask them, they'll say, well, my parents brought me to the church to be baptized when I was a baby, and their parents brought them to the church to be baptized when they were a baby, and that's why we do it. They're like, okay. Mm-hmm. So the sameness is what comforts you, but you're not applying it in any particular way. And God forbid you should have some superstitious belief that because I put water on your child's head and said words, that somehow that's going to inoculate them against something bad that could happen to them or inoculate them against hell should they die before they come of age or something. I mean, that's just superstition. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that what makes the rituals rich and valuable is your faith and your shared faith with the other people in the community where you do these things. You know, the only reason that your baptism or your wedding or any of the things you do within the walls of the church have lasting value is because they're done before other people who share your values. You always have a body of witnesses there, and there are people who share your traditions and who share your belief about the space in which it's happening share your beliefs about the words that are being used, even their shared beliefs about the authority that I have as the clergy person. And so your sense of my authority comes from the fact that I have a stole that was given to me by a bishop who said this person is worthy to carry out this office. And so we're all using tradition as foundation and the foundation is worthless unless we are all part of that foundation. See, a foundation is made of many bricks. And one brick doesn't make a foundation. So whenever you do church, you're actually engaging a whole body of people who are like the bricks of the foundation. And it is your shared belief expressed in community that holds the whole thing up. It makes me wonder about Christmas, like all the Christmas traditions that each family holds. And I mean, it's November 1st, so Christmas stuff has been out for at least a month by now (laughs) in stores. I mean, it's insane. It's insane how quickly it comes out. And I just wonder how many people love Christmas because of the traditions with their family, because of... I don't know, hot cocoa around the fire Christmas morning or whatever. Like, when you love tradition and you love Christmas, are you loving the tradition or are you loving the reason for Christmas? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, are- Well, yeah. Well, I think it's another version of, I, I think you are saying what, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I think you're saying the same thing I just said. Yeah. That tradition that is done without any meaning is it what we're really embracing is the sameness like we we want this thing to happen because it ties us to something that made us feel good in the past and so there's a sense that if we don't do what we did when it felt good in the past that the present won't feel good And if we decide not to do this anymore, then the future won't feel good. 
And so many of our traditions come from the fact that there is a distant memory of a time when this really felt good. And we don't want to risk not feeling good. And and so, you know, yeah. I mean, if you love coming to our candlelight service for Christmas Eve every year, then every time we stand and hold candles, candles lit and sing Silent Night, it's comforting to you. And maybe you go out of your way to get your kid there, your grandkid there, because you want them to experience it. And God forbid they should tell you later that evening, I thought it was all boring, you know, because then you're going to find out that it doesn't comfort everybody just because it comforts you. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm not judging it. I'm really just saying, you know, what I'm saying at this moment is really just more analysis than anything. At Christmas time, I feel compelled as the pastor and the primary worship presenter to make sure that I include certain elements every year because people really count on that. And I'm not, I'm not particularly motivated to take that away from them, but I do have concerns for them, especially the ones that only show up for that every year. Because I'm thinking, you know, you really are just all about your own comfort. And the problem with that is only that it's a pipe dream. You know, you, nobody is guaranteed a life of comfort. Nobody is guaranteed a life without suffering. And I've just had the unfortunate experience as a pastor of meeting people who when discomfort comes, they feel very let down and they take it out on God. And it's like, you know, wait a minute, you don't understand, God. I created you in my own image, and for my sake, you are going to take me wherever I want to go and prevent me from experiencing anything I don't want to experience. And now you've just blown the deal. And what they're really experiencing is the letdown that is human life. I find it interesting. I heard a podcast yesterday where a guy said that he used to be a Christian, but he wasn't anymore because he couldn't come up with an explanation that satisfied him for why God lets bad things happen. You know? Really? Yeah. And that's when you chime in on his comments and say, well, you should listen to my podcast from last <laughs> week when we discussed this very issue. Wouldn't that be something? Well, you know, it might, but I doubt that he would, uh, you know, because this is a f more famous person than I'll ever be. But, well, yeah. but, but what's really interesting is, is that it tells me that when you thought you were a Christian, you really weren't. Mm. You know, because there's a lot of people that claim to be Christian believers, but they're not. And they go to church all their lives and they believe that they are Christian. And their, their self-representation as Christian has more to do with what they believe about themselves than what God believes about them. And if you stop and think about it, the very essence of a Christian is a person who is convinced that because of Jesus Christ, I have a certain belief about what God thinks of me. 
it doesn't mean the same thing when you say, I believe I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a Christian. No, the really important thing about being a Christian is, is that God believes you're a Christian. Mm. <laughs> and why would God believe I'm a Christian? And why would I have the audacity to assume that I understand and know what God believes about me? Well, because Jesus told us exactly how to know. In other words, if I'm a Christian, it's because God believes that I am as good in his eyes as his own son, Jesus. And Jesus is the one that told me that that's how it worked. I can read his words in the Bible. His apostles explained to me that that's how it worked. That it's what God believes about me that makes me a Christian, not what I believe about God. Because I can change my mind about what I believe about God, but God never changes God's mind. Mm -hmm. God's the same yesterday, today, and always. That's what he meant when he told Moses, my name is I am. <laughs> Meaning I'm always, I'm never changing. I'm outside space and time. I'm apart from everything I created. What I am is all that I am. And the fact is, is if I say you're good because you have trusted my son's act of grace, for your salvation and your restoration to a right relationship with me, your creator, then you are. So my, my job as a Christian is not to keep making it about me and keep defining it around my tastes, my interests, what I find easy to believe and what I don't find easy to believe because none of it's about me. Because if it ever becomes about me, then I'm the God. And if you stop and think about it in those terms, then you realize that there are a lot of people who go to church all their lives to worship themselves. And the reason that they don't know it is because they have missed the fundamental element that says, I did not come to worship what I want what I need, what I feel, I came to worship God. And the reason I worship God is because out of pure grace, which is just a word that means unmerited favor, out of pure grace, he saved me so that I could live with him in eternity, in, throughout all eternity. And he saved me from sin and death that separated me from him. And so his pure grace is what I come to worship. I worship his love for me, his love expressed through his son. I come to experience his heart and mind in the form of the Holy Spirit because I want to be one with him. And this is why we often hear terminology in scripture that refers to the, the body of Christ or the church as the bride and Christ as the groom. And what do we know about marriage in the Christian sense? It's about two becoming one. And so the whole idea then is that there's a union of souls in a marriage, and we use marriage to describe the, describe the relationship between Christ and the church, which is us Christians, as marriage, which means a union of souls. So what do I experience when I worship God? 
because I just can't help it. An irresistible urge to unite my soul with the heart and mind of God because I just love him and I can't help loving him. And why can't I help loving him? Because he loves me as though he can't help it. And the difference is everything about him is worthy of love and worship, but everything about me is not worthy, but he makes me worthy through Jesus. So when he looks at me, he sees his son. And all that goes back to why most people go to church to worship themselves because they worship their tastes. They either like the music or they don't like the music. They either like the preaching or they don't like the preaching. They like the pews or they don't like the pews. They like the coffee or they don't like the coffee. They like the people in that Sunday school class, but not the people in that Sunday school class. And on and on it goes. And it's all about me. It's mm. me, 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 I, I, I. And when that gets out of hand, people start worshiping tradition. They start worshiping buildings. They start worshiping artifacts. They start worshiping dates on a calendar, you know, they, and then they're really no different than pagans who follow the movement of the sun and the stars and the moon. And they're really depending on God in the same way that you depend on a, uh, I'm trying to, there's a big $10 word for it that I can't seem to pull out of my memory banks, but they're depending on God in the same way that the serfs who live outside the castle depend on the king. I got to give him what he needs from me so that when I need something from him, he'll come through for me. Mm. And so it's quid pro quo. I give God my hour every Sunday because I'm counting on it to pay off when I need it most, which is basically when I die or when I'm in the hospital with a disease or a sickness or an injury. Um, this is harsh. Yeah, it is. But um, it's true. Yeah. You know in your heart it's true. John put that idea in a quick little phrase for the kids last week uh, in youth group and he said that some people think of God as a cosmic vending machine Yep. and I, I, I liked how he put that because it's so simple to understand you put your money in you go to church you do all these things and it's all about works you put it in and then he delivers for you and I think if you operate in Christianity with that mindset Anytime any sort of difficulty comes your way, you're going to shake that vending machine. You're going to be like, God, come on. I put in my quarter. I put in my dollar fifty. I put in my whatever. And I wanted candy. And you gave me an apple or whatever, you know? Yep. And that is so upside down. Mm -hmm. That's so not how God works. And the Bible tells us that all over the place. You just gotta love him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and and you know, in in case someone might be hearing my words and thinking, you know, what a what a jerk. <laughs> I want you to know that if you'll read the New Testament 
words of Jesus. If you read the words of the apostles in their letters to the different churches and so forth, when you read Jesus's words in the book of Revelation, where he basically scores the churches on their faith and faithlessness and all of that, it's all there. I haven't said anything that you can't find in the New Testament. The religion isn't necessarily bad, but if you are kind of hung up on a tradition and a shared cultural norm, then that's all you're ever going to get out of it. And that's exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You know, you enforce every letter of the law, but you've missed entirely the heart of the law. You know, and funny thing is, is even if it's oppressive, people will find it more comforting than liberty. It's really interesting that the people of Israel never managed to obey God's command that they have a year of Jubilee on a regular basis. And it's because they don't know what to do with liberty. Because freedom is scary. You know, there's an old, I read this like 40 years ago. Or heard it, I don't know. 40 years ago I probably heard it. But anyway, I um, I heard about this this situation. You know, back in the 70s when I was in grade school and junior high school, um, a lot of modern ideas were starting to take hold, you know, and so the the World War II generation was giving way to the hippie generation and a lot of the teachers had, you know, long hair and bell bottoms and big bushy mustaches and long hair and short skirts and all this kind of stuff and they had lots of great ideas, I guess, and one of their ideas was that if you take if you put children out on the playground with a fence around it, they're like caged animals. That's just not right. And what they found was they took the fences down around the playground and the kids wouldn't use the entire playground. They would stay in the middle of the playground and huddle together. Whereas before they took the fences down, the children would go all the way out to the fence and they would you know, lean on the fence like a backdrop or backstop for their backs or whatever, backrest, I guess is what I mean. They they would, you know, watch the world go by, whatever. So it turned out that the kids needed boundaries. And without boundaries, they were afraid to explore because they didn't know where they shouldn't go. They needed that structure. They needed boundaries. And so it's kind of in our nature to behave as though we need boundaries. And sometimes when the Lord gives you freedom, you don't know what to do with that. You know, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's amazing. I remember listening to a guy tell a story one time about how he had been uh, in a big clinic somewhere to get tested for something. And and uh, they sent him to a little cubicle with a curtain on it and told him to change out of his street clothes and into one of those awful robes with the backside open. And, and when he got done, he stood at an imaginary line where the curtain stopped 
and he wouldn't go out into the hall and he started thinking about why he was just going to stand there until someone told him what to do and it was because he just felt like he had to have permission you know and I, I think about that all the time I think I think you know when that guy told that story I just really identified with it because I thought we're so afraid of freedom it's something we feel like we want worse than anything because we naturally hate oppression, but we also hate the absence of boundaries and rules and, and structure. And so somewhere in our life of liberty through Christ, there is this need to be free, but there's also an equal need to, to have some regulation. You know, and I think that's what we struggle with in church, too. You know, because we started this conversation, what, about 50 minutes ago? Mm -hmm. And we started talking about how we would sometimes do things differently in church, and that people who are used to things being done exactly the same way would find that difficult. And we're still talking about it. We're still talking about this natural tendency that people have to want boundaries and rules, but also crave freedom worse than anything, and yet fears freedom. Hmm. <laughs> you know, because we, we exercise freedom in our church, and immediately the people who are used to rituals that never change become frightened and uncomfortable. And you say, well, did anybody die? You know, and and will communion taste different next week because we skipped a week and and just on and on it goes. And it's just that it's just funny how how structured we are and how uncomfortable we are with freedom. And I think that has a lot to do with why um, why so much of what we do in life that comforts us is full of sameness. Because that sameness comforts us. It, it serves like a fence around our lives that keeps us from feeling like we're, you know, it's almost as though without the boundaries, without those things, it's almost as though the world's going to start spinning too fast and we're going to fly off. And we need things that hold us on the ground, you know, and the liberty of life in Christ gives us permission to be and do things that most of us are really not comfortable with. And I bet you, I'll bet you that that is why God inherently dislikes oppression. Like, like when you think about the essence of human sin, I'm talking, go back to the Garden of Eden, you know, the fall from grace, yada, yada, right? Go all the way back there. And you find out that the two things that, that God just can't stand is chaos and oppression. And everything God does is about eliminating chaos and oppression. And isn't it interesting that we view freedom as chaos and we view structure as a good form of oppression. Like, you know, like, like 
I don't know what it would be like, but I think maybe someday when I'm living in paradise with Jesus or it's after the resurrection and we're here on earth made new, it might be very strange for all of us to get used to all that freedom. You know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something to ponder. <laughs> so Adrian's looking at me like, okay, now where do we go? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe we just knock it off there. You know, here, here's something for you, dear listener. If this thing is of value to you, we'd love to hear about it. I mean, we really would. If you listen to this podcast more than once and you like what you hear or really not just like it because again you know what if it turns out that it doesn't matter whether you like it or not what is the real question is the lord talking to you through it that's what we hope and so you know if this feeds your soul in any way why don't you tell us about it you know wherever you listen to it there's usually a place where you can give a thumbs up go ahead Wherever you listen to it, there's usually a place where you can drop a comment, and we'd welcome that. Like I said, be nice. You know, we're all friends here. Let's not try to, you know, insult one another because we're really just here to uplift and encourage one another and worship God like we just can't help it. But, um, you know, we'd love to hear from you. And, And what's more, if you send us your questions, we can try to address those. And it oh, might be fun. Little question and answer session. Sure. That'd be cool. We could do our regular weekly echo and then maybe finish with one of those questions. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Give us a jingle. Send us a note. Here's another refreshing idea. What about a good old-fashioned letter? Hey. <laughs> like with a stamp. <laughs> you know you Crazy. can still do that, I yeah. hear. It is still an option. Yeah. And, and they call it snail mail, but, you know, it's surprising how quickly it actually gets here. Yeah. Pretty good stuff. All right. We'll close there. We'll All see right. you next week. See you, friends.